Welcome to the Born to Write podcast, dedicated to writers, authors, and the art of storytelling. Go behind the scenes where writers reveal their ups and downs and how they finally shared their stories with the world. Now, here is your host, Azul Tarones. All right, everyone, welcome to the Born to Write podcast. Today, we are here with my dear friend from years ago, Dominic Carrillo. So glad to have you on the show, Dom. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So what's really great is I realized as I was reflecting about how long we've known each other, I was like, I think we've known each other almost 10 years, which kind of surprised me because I was like, wow, the 10 years ago that fast? But we met on my birthday 10 years ago this November because I remember you coming to my party with a friend of mine going, huh, how do you know each other? So that was pretty interesting. So yeah, it's been a while since we've known each other and we're here to talk about your writing and how you got here. So tell us a little bit about the books you've written and we're going to go backwards from that to how you got to be a writer and what you're doing now. Okay. So should I go backwards from the last book? Yeah, let's or start the with first? The, the most recent book you wrote that's out now. And let's talk a little bit about that book because I feel like that's where we started to like really connect. And then let's talk about, we'll go back after that and talk about your early writing career. So tell us about Paco, the most recent book that's out. Yeah, so the most recent book, Paco Jones, it's The Improbable Rise of Paco Jones. It's about an eighth grader, and I teach eighth grade English. I got a lot of inspiration from observing my kids, listening to my kids, seeing what they're interested in. And, and the one thing that I noticed here at this, I teach at an international school in Sofia, Bulgaria, is that there's lots of kids that think they're more mature than they are. Like they're ready to be in high school or beyond that. Yeah. And yet some of the books, some of these YA books, these that are geared towards that age group, they're not, they're kind of kiddish. They're like caught in this weird place. These, these eighth graders, I think, where it's in between like a middle grade kiddish type of rural doll book. Yeah. And then something that's a little bit older and the young adult older thing is a little bit beyond them because it talks about sex and drugs and things that they might not be ready for. Right. <laughs> so, and so I was trying to write a book that I thought spoke to them that dealt with issues that they really deal with without going into, you know, suicidal druggy that, you know, where there's like rape involved and, and all these like really traumatic things that maybe they're not ready for. So it's kind of lighter. It's like a light a Sherman Alexi type. That's what I was thinking because I used, you probably know about the part-time Indian. What's it? The, yeah, his, the He has a story called the absolutely true story of a part-time Indian or something like that. And the kids, when I used that a few years ago, they really liked it. And I thought, oh, this is something, something that I could emulate. And, but in my own way, in my own like Mexican-American international school. Right. You know, that was really what struck me because you were a high school teacher, college before that, going in reverse order as you're teaching, you probably discovered some amazing things because I know that after working as a high school administrator and then getting to back to middle school, you realize, God, these are such a stuck in the middle group of kids who really are smarter than their body and maturity allows them to deal with in our society, at least. And they really want to deal with real themes, but they don't really feel like no one people don't think of them as adults right. or mature. 
So I really thought that was really great about your book. I felt like you took some really interesting risks in talking about some things that were sexual in nature or relationship in nature that really were profound for people who were going to be eighth grades and seventh grade too. I mean, I think that would, it would be appropriate for that grade as well. So I want to talk to you about where that inspiration came from. But you know, it's funny, you mentioned Sherman Lexi. I was never really great like you. We both went to UCLA. It was funny how we discovered that. I never was really great as a writer. Actually, I'm dyslexic and actually flunked out of freshman English. So I had to go back to SMC, community college to, to pass. What was really great about it was is that I ended up becoming, becoming the assistant editor for the American Studies, American Indian Studies Journal. And I edited uh, Sherman and Lexi's first poems because we were the press that published them. Some of the first poems. Yeah. So I've got to meet him and hang out with him, but it was really because we were doing his work. And uh, yeah, it was a long time ago, maybe 20 something years ago. Wow. Yeah. Oh, he's doing well. He's doing all right. <laughs> yeah. But tell me a little bit about where you get the inspiration for Paco, and then we'll talk about where do you find inspiration for any new books you have? Or where does that come from? Oh, well, I think Paco Jones was is a combination of me and this kind of nerdy kid that was in my class a few years ago. So the part that's for me is that I'm half Mexican, half white. In the That doesn't mean much in Bulgaria, but in Southern California, that meant like kind of riding the fence between two different cultures. And as you grow up trying to figure out who you are, what, you know, am I Mexican and am I white? What does white even mean? What does Mexican even mean? And then I think getting older and figuring out that you just, you are who you are and you embrace both sides and everything and it's all a part of you. But right. when I was in eighth grade, it was actually when I was in ninth grade, that started to become confusing for me. I was forced to think about it because I went to this private school that was pretty wealthy and and I didn't feel like I fit in at all. I was I felt like a poor kid in a private school with a bunch of white students, which was part of my experience, but also completely foreign to me in a way. So that's part of Paco's experience in the book, in the story. And then what I got from my own students was there are these two this couple, right? And it was a very serious, open, you know, boy, girl, like stud of the class and like the queen, if you will, of the class of this eighth grade class. Yeah. And everyone, it was like the big open public thing that they were together and that they hung out all the time. And it was very serious. And there's even this rumor through, which is weird that a teacher would even get this kind of rumor, but through other parents that were teachers, the rumor was that these kids, this couple, they were having sex in the eighth grade and their parents knew and they were fine with it. And that was a shock to me. And then, but then I found out that other students knew that too. And so <laughs> in the meantime, there was this kid who I will not name. I would just catch him staring at this girl in, yeah. you know, the girlfriend. He was staring at her and he was this kind of nerdy new kid that didn't really fit in. And he was Bulgarian, but he was in this international American school where he was trying to find his place. And he would just daydream and stare at this girl and I'd catch him and he'd give me this look like, you know, like he caught me and he was in his fantasy world or whatever. So I, I imagined that new kid that looked like he had no chance as Paco, like underdog who's got no chance to 
make it higher in the hierarchy of the ridiculous middle school hierarchy of who's cool and who's not and and then have a chance with this girl at the same time, which just seemed impossible, but an interesting start for a story. Right. And it was interesting to me because I was connecting to, you know, a personal story and this and what I was watching in class, but also it's a typical story, you know. It's not like it's anything new. I just was bringing my own, I don't know, my own unique experience to it. Right. So when you go to write a story, it's like that's a pretty interesting genesis for a story. How do you begin? Like, do you have a process for starting to map out the story? Do you test out some characters in dialogue? What do you do to get ready? And then how do you plan and execute a young adult novel? How does that look like? Well, in this case, I usually just start off with a scene. Like maybe the scene I just described to you where this kid's staring at the girl in class and the rumors going around. Like I started with a scene like that and I just wrote the scene and described the scene. And then when I start that way, I now know that might not even be in the book. You know, it might just be my own visual start to it. And then I'd build from there. So if that sounds unorganized, I used to, it's more organized than I was before. Like I think this book I started there, but then I actually got a map out and I said, okay, who's this character and kind of described each character and, and really mapped it out. And I had never done that before. And it helped. It didn't feel as natural and organic as I like it to, but it helped a lot because even if I got stuck in the writing process, I could go, okay, if I'm stuck with this scene or in this, you know, particular part of the story, I'm just going to go back and write, you know, something that comes before that or something that comes after that with this other character. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. So do you organize it visually like on post-its or do you do it a, a map of some sort or do you arrange it on index card? I mean, what is your, what does the visual process look like? There's a lot of people who want to write a book. and I think I'm overwhelmed. For Papa Jones, I wrote, I created like a big map, like a poster, I had poster paper and I just wrote, you know, bubbles like one of those brainstorming bubble charts and connected the dots. And that was pretty much it. But it was the first time I had done that. And I think I'm getting more organized as I, because there's a new one just finished and I'm even starting to write a sequel to that. And so I think I just keep getting more and more organized with my writing, but it's embedded. It's not something that I'm, you know, I'm getting some formula somewhere. It's just, I'm a little bit more deliberate about writing out ideas, keeping track of them, putting them in Google Docs and and all kind of linked together. Right. Let's talk about that because I actually like writing in Google Docs. Sometimes it frustrates me a, a little bit, but it's easier for me to search things or organize things into files and folders. I've used Scrivener before. I've, I use Word at the end to give to my editor. They want it in Word. But how do you, when you use Google Docs, do you have a system are you a haphazard person and just go, at the end, I'll reorganize this? I mean, I'm thinking about what I'm writing right now. And it depends, I guess, on who you ask. Some people would say like, oh, wow, this is really unorganized, Dominic. It's, you know, I have some kind of chicken scratch types of ideas in the, in the beginning about characters and then the story starts. But what I like about Google Docs is I'll actually comment on my own, my own parts of the story to remind me that, you know, I've got to make sure that this character, for instance, is, may, it, 
Well, it was this one, there's this grandmother that is just a horrible person, the granddaughter. And she's trying to make an effort to hang out. She's saying she wants to spend time and connect with her granddaughter, but she really makes no effort. She's really selfish. But I'm writing comments and then also linking if I want to remind myself, like this grandmother character, this the mother of the daughter who's the protagonist, I'll actually have a link to another Google Doc <laughs> that will decide. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? It's kind of a mess, but in, in a way... It works for me. Yeah. So let's talk about your previous book. I mean, I've been fortunate to read your book since you've been putting them out because I remember early on when you had, you were speaking at a small writers group in San Diego when we, we both live there and you were having a reading and there were people there going to buy your book. And I was so excited to come. I hadn't written a book. I had only taught young people to write. I'd published books with my students since 2008. So I know a lot about getting it done and all that, but I didn't really know about being a actual writer at that point. And I remember I was so curious about your process and how did you get an editor? Where do you find an editor? A lot of people on the other end are probably asking these similar questions, but let's talk about when you started to write the first book, the first time you sat down to write the book, what was that like? Because I know that you have gone to school for creative writing, but what of your past and your school experience informed the book that you actually wrote, the first book? Well, I didn't actually go, I didn't go to the school for creative writing ever, but I did take a creative writing class at UCLA. There you go. So it was, you know, it was really that one class. How did that, inf- that was that the spark or was that just, oh, that's an interesting thing? Well, that was a spark. That was probably in 2004, maybe, or 2005, but that was the spark of, wow, this is a process. It's not something that you just, you know, you have talent in it, either a writer or you're not. That class taught me that there's a process and you have to, you have to be able to take feedback and understand that your first draft will probably be pretty crappy or at least nowhere near the crafted, polished thing you're capable of at the end. And you just need to be patient. And because that class, what we did was we we came in with our few pages and we didn't have names on them. We just had numbers. The teacher collected them and then he redistributed and he just called a number and you read whatever was in front of you. And then everyone gave really honest, open feedback because they didn't know who it was. Right. And right. so because it was anonymous. They were able to do that. And you know, unless the writer in the room turned beat red or, you know, no one started crying or ever ran out of the room, but you get that kind of feeling. That was the first time I felt this rush, weird rush of emotions where you hear someone reading your stuff or talking about what you're writing. And if you don't have a thick skin, I don't even know if thick skin is about, I think it's just an understanding that, that it's a process and that you're, you put your ego aside and you say, how can I make this writing on this paper, this story better? It's not about like you as a person being valued or not. It's about making the story better. And so that's where I started to get that understanding that inspired me because I thought, okay, that fits me, my personality more to, to have this accept and embrace a process that's over time that includes pay, <laughs> where you need patience and this sense of like, it's going to just 
belief that it's going to get better and better the more you craft it, the more you get feedback from people. Right. I think that's the best thing that you could say to people out there is realize your first draft will probably be crap and don't work so hard at the first draft. Just work at getting the first draft done so you can get critique and feedback. I mean, I think that's the thing that prevents people, myself and any writer included, is the fear of being judged about whether or not it's good enough or does this make sense or what will people review it like? So they live in their head longer than they should. And what I've learned, a lot of people will grow over time as humans, right? Hopefully. And if they wait too long to write these books, unless they're needing to grow themselves to write the book, they change. And so they want to go back and revise because their experiences change. And so they keep revising and they go back, oh, but this is different now. So they revise and they never get it out of their head or even out of a computer or you know, a drawer. I mean, I think that that really keeps people from taking the step forward. How did you get the courage to say, okay, I'm ready? So let's talk about your first book that you published because I really, I love that book. I thought it was so inspiring. Um, and we passed it around when we were on vacation. I read it and I passed it to my husband, Steve, and then we passed it to my mom and she, we all read it in the same week. So it was that good that I, we just kept passing it around. So let's talk about that book. Thanks. Well, I'm glad you read it. I'm glad you guys liked it. So you mentioned the, what was the, that kind of got me over the fear of, of the judgment and just taking that first step of committing to writing it. Yeah. And that was some encouragement from the San Diego Reader Magazine, which was, well, two people, but the editor there at San Diego Reader uh, submitted a story that was, was connected to this idea of Frank Diego, this guy in San Diego who's in his early 30s and frustrated and with life and he needs a change, but it's that day-long walk through the city trope, I guess you'd call it. Right. And, and so I wrote maybe just a two-page, well, it wasn't even like, it wasn't more than 500, it, might, it was around 500 words, but it was about this guy's neighborhood or my neighborhood. And because there was a contest about write about your neighborhood. And I thought, hey, what a boring idea to write about your neighborhood. This is something. And so in writing about that and forcing myself to submit to this contest, I thought, oh, if they like it, great. If not, no big deal. And I wrote about how in San Diego, this neighborhood just had zero character. And it was something that was very uninspiring. And, you know, there's the same strip malls and they just redo their facades every 10 years to look updated. But there's not much going on, no foot traffic, nothing, nothing interesting to me. And I wrote about that and it won. And they don't do this anymore, but because that was in 2008 or 2007, but I won $500 for 500 words, pretty much, or 700 words. And I thought it was a huge encouragement. You know, it was a huge piece of like validation for me because I thought, wow, someone that I don't know at all, it's not my mom, it's not my friend, they thought this was worthy and well-written. And, and so that really sparked it because Frank Diego, this character is going through San Diego and he's kind of criticizing it and making fun of it as he goes. And that was the spirit of that, that article for San Diego Reader. So that was the big boost for me. Cause I, and I think that's important that there has to be that encouragement somewhere, that validation somewhere along the way that you're like, okay, this is worth it. Because to be Frank Diego it took me probably three years to write was it three years from the idea to end until it was in the other people's hands or yeah. And now how long are your books taking you? 
I'd say less than a year. Yeah. I mean, with this last one, it was, it was less than a year. And it's just making sure that even if I take a week off, a week away from it or 10 days away from writing this particular project, that I'm going to come back to it and reread it and then continue. And it's about just consistency and, and pecking away. I know some people have schedules. Some writers have schedules and they say, I'm going to write for two hours every day, no matter what. And I don't really do that. I just make sure that I don't take too much time away from it, that I'm always contributing something, even if it's just writing about an idea about a character, an idea, side comment. I make sure that I don't disconnect myself too much from it. Right. I think that's important. I try to encourage myself to write word count every day because sometimes I struggle with producing volume. So I said a thousand words and I know I can do that within an hour. So if I don't get it by an hour, I usually just stop at an hour. But for the most part, a thousand words can come out an hour pretty simply with just not trying to think in my head, but try to think on paper, which is what I tell people, like think on paper. So even if you're not sure where you're going or what you need to write, just put even those thoughts down because you can remove those thoughts, but you, you can't do anything with zero writing that day, right? So I think you're right. It's a really, it's a habit. It doesn't have to be strict. I think there's some people who think if, if you're not this strict with yourself, it's sort of like exercise. If you're not going to love doing it, then showing up yeah. every day, you're just going to cheat through it. You know, you'll, you'll just show up and eventually you'll just not go because you hate it so much. So you have to make it a, a pleasurable experience for walking forward every day into something that, you know, eventually you can learn to love. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I've realized that like if I get moody, you know, just feeling kind of like upset world, I realize like I haven't written in five, in a week or five days or whatever. I like, I need to have that alone time. Cause it's, there's a meditative reflective something that actually know that I need now. Otherwise I, I'm out of balance in some way. I don't know if you can imagine me out of balance as well, but no, actually you're like the calmest guy I know. It can, it can happen. Yeah. <laughs> so let's continue to talk about, so when you wrote this first book, you were trying to share, get it done. How did you know what to do next? Like, where did you, I mean, you finished uh, a book, which is an amazing thing. Cause it sounds like you just did it. You didn't have any mentorship or clear path, or maybe you did, you didn't talk about it. But then how did you know what to do next or did you? I didn't. And that's why it probably took me three or three and a half years because I was, it was all trial and error and I didn't know what I was doing. So I think that's why now I can look forward and I have about three different novel length stories that, that I have, you know, on the back burner and, and they don't intimidate me because now I kind of feel like, okay, if I do this process that I know that I like, it's not going to take that long. But yeah, with the first one, I remember I was writing bits and pieces of it here and there, but never really committing to the, that scary task. I'm going to write and finish, you know, from first chapter to last or whatever the order was. And I don't know if I told you this, but I went to Guatemala for, <laughs> for the summer and I had just broken up with my girlfriend. And then I got sick when I was in, I was like, I was planning on learning Spanish and traveling and making new friends. Then I think I had some, something really bad late night on the street and I ended up being sick for the next 10 days. 
or I couldn't really do anything. And so I was miserable. And you know how it is probably if you get food poisoning in a different country. And we don't want to talk about the details, but I, <laughs> it was during that time where I was really sick and unable to do anything. I thought, you know what? I don't want to die before I write a book. I want to write this book. And it's, I've been procrastinating. And now is the time to do it because I'm here on my own. And so I found a cool coffee shop in Antigua, Guatemala. And I just went there every day for probably six or seven hours and drank coffee and ate and wrote to be Frank Diego. And it felt great because after a week, I had over 100 pages and I felt like the story was, you know, made sense from beginning to end. I knew I'd have to revise it, but I had done it. And then I went back to revise it. They say like, you know, let it sit for a little while, get some distance, then you can come back with more of an editor's view. I did that, felt really good about it months later. And I thought I was done, and which is laughable now. It's like a complete, <laughs> right. I thought I was done and I was proud of being done because from that point over the next probably two years, it changed so much from what it was just from getting feedback and from reading it, like letting a month pass and then rereading it and just seeing horrible gaps and, and problems just with the tone and the voice and you know, I was seeing that it was like, oh, this this sound, this narrator sounds like bitter jerk, hmm. and then, but I was going for humor, <laughs> so like something's not working here, and so yeah, it took me forever, and then I hired a, an editor. Once I thought, okay, this is, I can't do any more with this on my own. I've done what I can as an editor and writer, and then paid an editor in San Diego to just give it a once over and then give me some suggestions. She did that. I did a major rewrite after that, gave it back to her for more of a line editing or a copy editing or whatever you call it. And, and then it was pretty much done. I went and made some final changes, but that took, took three years. And even at the end, I remember feeling this, this editor was great. I mean, she was like, it was like she was throwing daggers at me as she was, as I was taking feedback, but it was still at the end, it was like that. I learned the most from that experience about how long and grueling the process can be. And by the end of it, you're just sick of what you've written. You're sick of it. You're sick of the story. You just want to publish it and get away from it. And but at the same time, you feel proud. You have the finished copy in your hands. And, and yeah, so the saving grade, the one thing about that book, that really made it worth it for me was that two years out, about a, almost two years after I published it, I just thought, okay, it's dead in the water. I didn't market it well. Some people liked it, but you know, it didn't pick up at all. And a professor at San Diego State sent me an email and said, I have a sociology class. It's about race, class, and gender. And, and I'm going to make your book required reading because I love it. And I was just blown away. And then I looked at her class list and she had, her two classes combined were like 350 students or something. And I thought, wow, this is, this is amazing. And so that's been actually most of the sales come from that class. She's been using it as, as required reading for the last four years. That's amazing. You know, what's interesting is that books have an interesting way of having their own life once they're birthed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's the thing 
that people don't understand that not only does it birth itself and live its own life, so does the author if they really wanted to. They start to become, they're like, I'm actual, I'm a writer. I'm doing this. And I think that people who get the notion, ah, I'm going to be a bestseller and it's going to make me money. I think they get, they're doing it for interesting reasons. And I think you, there's definitely ways you can make it more successful and be more marketable. But what I've observed is that people think that somehow the book in itself is going to transform them. And really the transformation happens as they write and they get that transformation at that moment. And then the book has its own transformation. And whether that brings the author with it or not, it's not up to them. It's up to the merits of the book and how much marketing's done, et cetera. And I think that's the thing that's exciting. Like I told you, I love that book. One, because I know you and your life. And so I got to look, lean into your character's voice and you know, know how much of it was you, how much it wasn't you. And living in San Diego, get to experience the city through that lens. So, I mean, like I said, I can really understand why that professor wanted to use it because it's a great narrative about race and about even just, I think, our modern times and like accepting who we are and who we're not, who we're told to be. Like, I really think there was a lot of great conversations to be had in that book. So just so you know, it was really, I thought it was fantastic. And I want to make sure that people understand that that writing is like one foot in front of the other and that even even if you're writing fiction and rather than nonfiction, creating an author persona is important because I think people think that you are your books but in fact, you have to put on like this hat mm-hmm. when, you're your, when you're an author, whether you're sharing your book for the first time or you're even trying to convince yourself that this book's not going to be crap or this book's going to be well-received. Tell us about, is there any author persona that you have to put on when you're getting ready to launch a book or share the book with the world? An author persona? Because do people assume it's all you? This is you. Because you're putting yourself in there. Some, you know, your experience in your life. What part of it do you feel like is you when you go to release this? And what part of it is you're like letting people know this is an author's view? Are you talking about the, like the difference between me and the narrative voice of the, of the book or of the story? Yeah, maybe that's what I'm talking about. Because I think you're so intimately connected with a book, but then when you're yeah. watching it, it's not really you in the book. Yeah. Yeah. That's something that I usually, if I speaking at an event, like a book author, event about my book, it's usually that I find myself clarifying that I am not Paco Jones. Paco Jones is a character that is a composite of my experience and things that I've observed. And it's not me. I remember last year, I think it was last year, I got a really mean email from a San Diego State student who wrote, uh, who read to be Frank Diego in class. And it was fun to I mean, it was hurtful the first time I read it, and then I didn't respond. I read it again, and he was, the first part of this email, he was just upset that he had to buy my book, that he was forced to buy my book. Then it was like $14. You know when you're, when you're a college student and you, you know that money is a lot of money to pay for your books? So he was upset about that. He was upset that he didn't like it. And the thing I thought was strange was he accused me of of it being an autobiography. He said, why are you calling this fiction when this is really you and this is your life? And, and just like come out clean, man, and say it's you. That was funny because, I mean, that's part of what you're saying. Like once you write it, now that baby, that book is out in the world and it's its own thing. And when someone picks it up, they're going to interpret that and make it whatever they want to make it, right? Yeah. That's the interesting thing. And actually, I've gotten a better understanding of that from 
my first book to read more recent writing, I have a better understanding of separating myself from, you know, this is me speaking and pretending like I'm some character versus this is a character that's its own separate creation. It started off like what the first draft was more memoir-ish or biographical, but by the time I'd rewritten it five or six times, it was Frank Diego was a completely its own character. It's his own thing. And so, yeah, it's, I think sometimes I make a point to explain to people to say like, Hey, this is the difference between me and this character. And this character is a separate entity, but in the end, yeah, the reader is going to, going to decide that for themselves, you know, like whether I have a copy of catcher in the rye right in front of me, you know, Right. One's going to imagine J.D. Salinger as what's a Holden Caulfield do that, you know? I mean, if that helps him connect to it. Right. And I think there's something actually kind of great about that. Because if you assumed it's you, you're like, you don't know me. I could have like no legs and, you know, no, I, like you're presuming I'm somebody. That's really pretty great because you've convinced them as an author that this oh. is who this character is real. And so I thought that was pretty great. So one last thing I want to, what books are you reading or have read that have inspired you as you're an author in your life that really gets you motivated? Wow. That inspire me. Hmm. You know, it's, that's a very interesting question because I have this book. I don't know if you've seen it. It's uh, Americana by mm-hmm. Shimon Adiche. And I think she's just a brilliant writer, but that's actually the kind of book that discourages me (laughs) because it's so good that I think, wow, I'm never going to be able to do this because this is amazing. And so I actually will put that aside and I'll read a book that if I'm, you know, in the process of writing or or getting there, I'll read a book that I, that will inspire me because I think I can do that. So for instance, Ernest Hemingway, you know, simple, Yeah, he's got some racist, sexist issues, but I like his writing style and reading it puts me in that place. You know, it puts me in the 1920s or 30s and I finish reading. I think I could write, I could write like that, right? You know, I could write in that kind of way that's simple and tells a really vivid, interesting story that has a message, but yet is preachy. Yeah, that's the kind of book that inspires me. It's either that or if I read a YA book, because that's really what I'm, what the direction and the road I'm on right now is young adult. If I read something that would be, you know, in my genre, but I don't like it, (laughs) (laughs) I could do better than that. Or I make the story completely different and give it a different edge or angle. And that's what inspires me. That's really great to hear. I mean, I think the most inspiring book that comes to mind in that vein would be Old Man and the Sea. It was the first book I actually read on my own mm-hmm. because I was dyslexic. I hated to read because it was painful. It took forever. So it was a short book, but I read it from Gideon. It was captivating. I think I was in eighth grade when I actually finally sat down. A book I picked that I read because I cared about it. Part of it, I cared about it because it was a short book. And then yeah. I just read the whole thing. I was blown away. And I think it, what you described is the simple nature of the story. The story wasn't complex. The story was simple, but the details yeah. and the characters' struggles 
those are the things that made me go, wow, this is interesting. Writing is cool. Because up until then, I thought writing's painful and awful. Why would anyone do it? Yeah. I think that's good to know that there's books that inspire you. And then there's books that you read that if you try to aspire to be them, it can really get, get at you, right? I had a couple of authors that I've helped that they they were trying to write like the, an author they really admired. I'm uh-huh. like, mm, but you're not Malcolm Gladwell. I appreciate that effort, but like, you got to be you. Your voice is more important than that voice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, if people want to know more about you or to follow you or to get an opportunity to read your books, where would you send them? Or would you want them to find out more about you? I would send them to dominicvcurio.com. That's my website. Or just go onto Amazon and, and search Dominic Carrillo or Paco Jones or To Be Frank Diego. I also wrote a book about a memoir about traveling my year of quitting my job and traveling that has not sold very well, but we can talk about that. There's, Let's there's talk new, about that. There's new marketing things. You know, I don't know. It's not great success, but Amazon marketing, I think, for me, has been one of the most effective tools and effective ways of getting my book, at least people seeing the cover, right, on the screen in front of their face because I started using it in July and I've had the best, and I'm not someone who makes a lot of money off of this, but the best two months in the last August and September. That's great. You know, I'll I'll point you to a course that my friend Dave Chesson created. It's a free course, which is great. He wants authors to use it about Amazon marketing, how to use Amazon ads and be effective. And he's, he also runs kindlepreneur.com, but basically helps people figure out how to help market your books. He focuses on Kindle, but really it works for any Amazon book. But it's important because that's things that now as you're getting more and more books, you realize tweaking things, sometimes tweaking a cover with a relaunch or tweaking the description because people are just searching Amazon. It's a search engine. They are not yeah. just magically finding your book. They're typing things in. And if Amazon rewards you because you did really well with reviews or downloads, or you give them some boost in ads, then they said, oh, if you like that book, you'll like this one. That's really helpful because people don't know of you and they're not searching the title of your book. Um, Another reason why thinking about titles for nonfiction books at least can be really helpful, but or genre-ish books that match the genre that they're already searching in can really help you. So I'm glad you mentioned that because I think there's a lot to be learned from authors who do their own marketing, how to get themselves in front of the, their audience who wants to know who they are. Because they're searching in a sea of books. They don't know which ones to choose. So they need help narrowing it down. Yeah. And the other thing that to me is, is obvious is that, just looking at the stats, is that that one ad for Paco Jones is helping my other books. You know, because if people get, you know, if they go to Paco Jones and they click on it and then they see other books and then they end up buying. So I'm excited about these the next one then you know that's coming out in January because I feel like that's going to be marketed and that's going to trickle down or you know affect these other books that are that I have on yeah. Amazon so yeah I'm excited about that good i have a friend who writes science fiction and mm-hmm. one of the things they learned from him is that if you have a book in a series it's really great because Amazon really likes the series because they know that readers, if they like a book, they typically will buy the next one. And so they encourage you to sell books for less than you normally would in a series and then sell the whole series as a set. 
at the mm-hmm. same price are a little bit higher than you would pay for just one book. And then because you've already written it and they've, they're going to buy this series individually until they like it, but they have more chance to buy the whole series. So it's a really interesting way of getting readers because the best thing you can do is to grow your books is to grow your readers one reader at a time. Mm-hmm. And sometimes series is the greatest way to just like turning the page. Amazon's so great. You want the next book? Yep. Click here. Right. And they just off they go. Mm-hmm. Make it easy for them to say yes. Rather than going, mm, I have $6 to spend. I'm not going to do that. And it seems counterintuitive to lower your book, but sometimes that's the easiest way to get people to buy it and then buy your next book because it's so much easier to buy a book psychologically that's less money than it is to buy, it, even if it's slightly more, based on other books. So it's an interesting thing. We'll we'll have to talk about that some other day when we talk have somebody on here about um, marketing your book because I think that's really it's really useful. Yeah, yeah, right. I'd love. To. I'm looking forward to that conversation. Dom, always great to connect with you and chat with you. Thanks for coming on the show today. Thank you very much. Join me again for another interview for great authors who talk about their story how they got there, and why they feel like they're born to write. Please subscribe to this podcast, leave an honest review, and you can always find me at coachazul.com.